This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is a very special episode in our series, The Case I Can't Forget. I am delighted to have on the show Alvin Chan, who's a fourth-year resident at UC Irvine. Now, when we first started this series and, and introduced it and announced it, Alvin reached out to us because he had a very special story uh, from his life that he wanted to share with us that I think is more than appropriate for this series. Um, Alvin, as I said, is at UC Irvine. He's a native to Southern California, and we are just so excited to have him on the show today to share this story. Alvin, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks, JP. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I, I gave a little bit of background, but just for our listeners, why don't you tell them a bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, so um, I'm Alvin. I'm one of the PGY fours at UCI. I'm one of Dr. Sue's residents. Um, so I, I, I sort of reached out to JP because I, I wanted to, I love this series, The Case I Can't Forget. And, and it was in my mind, when I was thinking about that, uh, my own case was me, <laughs> uh, which really affected sort of how I decided to go into neurosurgery and become a doctor. Um, so I just wanted to see if, if JP was, was interested in hearing about it. And, and I'm so lucky that you guys asked me to come on. Yeah, I mean, we're, like I said, we're really grateful that you reached out and you're you're comfortable and even enthusiastic to come on and share this. So, you know, this is your story and you are the storyteller. So I'll leave it to you. We're, we're at this fork in the road. You can either be like a good junior resident and just give us the one liner and then get us there. Or you could give us the story from the very beginning and let things unfold. I'll put it in your hands. Uh, Alvin, let's let's hear about your case. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I've never had to give a one liner on myself before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I'll just start from the beginning. So this all happened like when I was in college. So I was 19 years old. I was in my first year of undergrad at UCLA. I mean, at that time, I had like no interest in medicine, really. Both my parents were pharmacists. My brother was a doctor. And my sister was also a pharmacist. Uh, so everybody was in the medical field. Maybe it was writing on the wall. But at that time, I, I have to say I wasn't that interested. I was really interested in... So I was really big into like lifting weights and bodybuilding and, and power lifting and things like that. And at that time I wanted to be like an actor and I wanted to be like you know, a writer or a model or something like that. Typical California stuff. I know. Right. <laughs> so I was in the gym one day and I was lifting weights and I felt this really like bad headache, not too bad, but it was just like a really bad headache. So I kind of started asking my friends like, you know, have you ever felt this before when you're lifting? And everyone's like, no, I've never heard anything like that. So I kind of just ignored it. It went away, happened again, ignored it, went away. And then there's one day I remember I was on the bench and it came and it was like one of those classic thunderclap headaches. Um, immediately I started throwing up, became incapacitated. The next thing I wake up and I'm on a vent. Um, I actually had no idea what happened. I had to like, so I, I don't know. I, I've never seen any other patients do this, but at the time, like I kind of could only communicate, the way I communicated was like by writing things down. Like I couldn't see anything, but I could just remember like my hand motion. Uh, and oh, wow. so I started writing and I just asked like what happened. And everybody's like, I thought, it was, at first I thought it was in the car. I couldn't remember anything that happened. And then 
I remember seeing my mom and my mom's like a rock. She doesn't ever show emotions. And she was sitting there next to me in tears. And so then I was like, oh my God, something, something seriously must be wrong. Um, and then they kind of explained to me what was going on. And it was, it was a rough couple of weeks of my life. I was, uh, it ended up that I was, you know, I came to the ED. I, you know, I wasn't conscious at the time, but, um, you know, they, they did a CT. They saw that had some IVH. I'm sure some intern placed an EVD in me. I don't know how many passes. Hopefully not too many. <laughs> and uh, they saw that I had an AVM, like in my corpus callosum on the right side. Oh. So they took me to OR. It was John Frizee, who was at UCLA, one of the brilliant vascular surgeons there, um, who operated on me and probably helped me in save a lot of my function because like originally I was paralyzed on the left side of my body for about two weeks while I was in the hospital. Oh. And, you know, it was, oh, it was a long two weeks, man. Like that's what that it felt like forever. And I remember I once at some point the tube came out and, you know, I started to went to the ICU to the floor, nothing was happening. The arm, the leg weren't doing anything. So I kind of just asked the neurosurgery team when they came in one day, I was like, you know, where are the chances that I'm ever even going to walk again? And they're like, well, we'd like to see more at this time. You know, so we're not 100% sure. You know, we're hoping 50-50. Yeah, as like a 19-year-old kid, man, I was I was so into playing basketball. I was into lifting weights. And to hear that was just, oh, my gosh. It, it just floored me. And yeah. I remember just it was it was a really, really rough time. And eventually – Thank God things did come back. And um, sorry, did you even say something there? Well, yeah, I want to ask you a couple things before we move on, because um, there, there are just little details. I'm trying to put myself in your position. When, when you first came in, you said you, you woke up and you were able to write, but you couldn't speak, you couldn't communicate. Were you fully conscious and fully aware of your surroundings and you just couldn't you couldn't get the words out. You couldn't generate speech, but you were all there mentally. Oh no, I was I was on a on the vent, so I was intubated at that time. So I I literally oh, but you were able to write. I, I see, I see. Yeah, I don't really know how that worked. They must have just woken me up. Like they must like stop the propofol or something for a minute. <laughs> yeah, and and, exactly and then and then I don't know if you if you know exactly, but. But I, I assume it's a short amount of time. Roughly, how long between your arrival at the hospital and your surgery? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was a, it was it wasn't immediate. It was maybe a day or two. So it wasn't okay. like I think they placed the EVD and then they did an angio, and then probably took me the next day or the day after. Got it. Wow. Yeah. So it 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 was it was a rough it was a rough time. I mean, two weeks, and then things started coming back. First my arm, and then my leg, and it was, it was, it was hard. Not just because of the physical aspect of it, but it was just the emotional toll of it. I think that's something that, you know, we we sort of sometimes not overlook, but we focus a lot on the su structural issues because the surgeons is what we do. We fix the structural problems, but mm. there's a whole emotional aspect of recovery that patients go through. That I remember, I because at that time, and the, the reason why I sort of went into 
why I liked fitness and things like that was that I felt weak. You know, I remember coming home and looking in the mirror and it's like everything that I had worked for in terms of like building muscle mass or whatever you want to call it, like was gone. Two weeks in the hospital, I was incapacitated, not moving. And it was, it was hard to see. I remember I went to the bathroom, like when I first got home and I haven't told, I've never told anybody that's JP, but I, um, I fell, I fell in the bathroom and I didn't mm. tell anybody that that had happened. Thank God I didn't hit my head, but I didn't tell anyone that happened because I didn't want to be perceived as weak at that time. Mm. Even though I'd gone through this whole thing. And so it was, it was difficult for me to deal with and difficult for me to sort of reconcile what had happened to me. And then, um, you know, what kind of purpose it served in my life, you know? So for the, for the part of, of these stories that we never see, we never hear, and, and probably, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't think about enough. You're in the hospital for two weeks. I assume you go to some kind of rehab facility after that. No, actually, it, it was very odd because when things came back, it's almost like they came back enough where I didn't have to go to rehab. I just really? came home with like outpatient PT. Yeah, I mean, I was I was walking with a walker, but okay. I was still sort of able to walk and, and move around. Okay, well, good. So good for you. So that was my my question was going to be all told how how much time you spend in a facility outside of your actual home, and it, I guess it sounds like a couple weeks. Yeah, I was. I was That's so crazy. thankful that things would come back um, pretty quickly. It, well, so in the grand scheme of things, two weeks is two weeks is nothing, right? But when you're sitting there in the hospital, yeah, nothing's happening. You, you don't know if two weeks is going to be two two weeks, two months, two years, forever. Right. So That's then, what made it hard. so then, pick it up there. So you get home. the The aspirations of modeling, movie star, the California dream, and now like the rest of your family, but from the other side of things, you dramatically intersect with the medical field. Where do you go from there? Yeah, I just, I, I felt like everything I did is on bor borrowed time. You know, everything after that, I felt like was on borrowed time. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I could have easily, I could have easily died from that experience. Uh, but you know what, what made, the real difference. So, so when I think back on that hospital stay, at least when I was younger, I mean, even to this day, I, I remember Dr. Fazee because he was, he was awesome, but I remember, and I wish I remembered his name. I'm sure he's out practicing somewhere, but there was a resident who always, you know, came to talk to me would stop and I know, you know, really now being a residency, I realized how busy that guy was, especially how busy UCLA is, but he always stopped to sort of talk to me about, basketball i think the nba mm. playoffs were going on at that time he, took, he just took the time to sort of talk to me about those things and and you know help me sort of escape what's going on a little bit and i just remember feeling thinking that guy was the coolest guy in the world and i wanted to be like him and i wanted to um to make people feel good in in their darkest moment you know that that's kind of what it was about was why i wanted to go into medicine and, and it sort of has shaped me and how I've looked at patients since then. Like I remember as a semi, um, I saw a patient and she was probably in her 60s. She fell backwards on her chair, hit her head and was 
all of a sudden quadriplegic. She probably had like, at the time, I, I you know, I didn't understand neurosurgery the way that I understand it now, but she probably had you know, pretty severe cords. Either she fractured something or she had central cord or something. And I remember she just was telling me when I was rounding on her, she said, I, all I want to do is move. That's all I want. All I want to do is move. And I remember I was talking about her on rounds and I started to tear up a little bit because I just, I remember that. I remember feeling like that. I remember thinking like, all I want to do is move. And it, it really affected me like in a way that I don't think if I had, hadn't had that experience, it wouldn't have affected me that way. And so she became like a special patient to me. She became somebody I was very, um, I felt very attached to, you know, because she was experiencing something that I had gone through. And unfortunately, she probably didn't have the same. I, I was so lucky. I don't even know. I'm lucky I didn't have a major stroke or something like that. Yeah. So you you go into medicine for the purpose of going into neurosurgery? Yeah, I was I was interested in neurosurgery from probably day one. That was I remember I went into my to my cadaver lab and I was like, I want to be a neurosurgeon. And everybody's like, Are you crazy? Why would you want to do that? Yeah. Um, but I think what I went through, it just it gave me a lot of purpose. It gave me a lot of thought in, into what I was doing and and what my calling in life was. And I remember I interviewed at Cleveland Clinic and I met with Dr. Benzel, who of course is a legend. Mm. And he was and, and sort of talked to him a little bit about my story. And he told me that neurosurgery is a call. You know, there's just something that we, we're just called to this field, right? We're, we're it, it's very self-selecting because we, we call our, we have a calling. And I think at that time, it, it, I had never thought of it in that sort of, in those sort of terms, but I think it's very true. I think neurosurgery was what I was going to end up doing no matter what. Well, Dr. Benzel's the real deal. I wonder, and, yeah. I, and I mean, the, the fact that you're here now having this conversation with me in front of an audience kind of answers the question, but um, the question of if, if you told this story and if, if you let people know about this during your interview process and your sub-I process, so I'll, assuming the answer is yes, I wonder what was that experience like for you? How did people talk about it? Do you feel like they looked at you a little bit differently? Because it, it's there's some fraction of neurosurgeons I know who the worst thing you can tell them if you're applying, you know, why do you want to be a neurosurgeon? Oh, my dad had a brain tumor. Oh, my cousin was hit by a car and a neurosurgeon <laughs> said, like, there, there's a, no, there really is a fraction yeah, of, sure. of attendings of residents who are turned off by that and who think, well, that's not a good reason to, to choose a career. And so I wonder if you come out with this story that's, that's not your sister, not your best friend, but it's you. How did that go when you were trying to get into the field that saved your own life? I think people were mostly supportive. Yeah. People in this field, I mean, we're a tough group, but I think we're all, it, it's a small, it's a small knit society. I think people were really supportive because I, I wasn't sort of, at least I wasn't trying to frame it in a, like in a sympathy sort of case. Like I, I, I really, I don't feel any weaker because I went through it. If anything, I feel stronger for having gone through it. And I think it, right. it makes me a better doctor. Um, it makes me want to get up and answer pages in the middle of the night and you know, do emergency cases and, and 
you know, I get excited to, to try to help save someone's life. So I, I think I tried to portray it as a strength. And I think people, at least, I, you know, I, I, I can tell what they're thinking, but my hope was that the impression was that this made me, you know, more fit for neurosurgery than not. Yeah, of course. And, and I mean, I, I will just, just to say it and to be clear, I am not saying that I think anyone with those motivations or that story, I, I don't think that's a bad story to have, but you do hear these sentiments out in the field. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that your experience was a positive one and a supportive one. Cause I, I can't imagine going through what you went through and seeing the people, as you said, now, you know, how tired the, those guys are running around you and saying, you know what, that's what I want to do. Um, and so I, I wonder, you, you mentioned that that lady who probably had a central cord and how you could relate to her because you had that period of time where you also couldn't move part of your body and you know that frustration. I think that all of us, um, despite our best efforts, there are patients that just naturally, we're, we're humans, we, we can relate to them more. Um, someone who looks like your mom, someone who reminds you of your brother. For, for me, anybody that I see in Chicago who has a remotely Southern accent, they get a little... <laughs> You know, they it just it hits something. It hits something from back home. You know, and you you can't control that that inward invocation of your emotional response, right? And so, you uniquely among practitioners of of neurosurgery, perhaps not uniquely, but certainly a a vanishingly small fraction of us, can relate to a vast swath of our patients in ways that none of us can, because you've been on the other side of it. You've been in that bed. Um, you know, it, it, it would be obvious and cliche to ask, how does that affect the way you interact with them? Of, of, of course it does, right? Of course it does. You can be in their shoes. What, what I wonder is, do you ever talk about that with patients? I, I mean, I guess some of these critically ill people, you can't really have the conversation with them, but when you talk to the family, when you talk with the patient later in their recovery, do you acknowledge this part of your background with them and, and do you bring it up in conversations or do you just channel the empathy? So I don't really talk about it as much with patients because I, I try to keep the focus on what they're going through. I, I don't want people to think that I, you know, everybody's experience is unique. I don't want people to think that, oh, that I think that because I, what I went through, right, it's the same as what they're going through. Sometimes I have said things to families of uh, especially pediatric patients if they because obviously parents care so much about their kids that their kids are going through something they don't paralyze at this issue i always felt myself not that i don't fight hard for the adult patients but i felt myself on my pizza rotation that i was always fighting harder for the kids because of i knew well not just them but also their parents what their parents are going through. Right. So sometimes I would share that experience with the parents and say, look, I, I had an EVD2 once mm. when I was when I was young. And well, not in these words, but you know, I would I would share that I had an EVD once and things were okay. Like things turned out like it doesn't and look, mean that I'm a brain surgeon. <laughs> I don't put it in those words. Right. I don't right. put it in those words, but I do say like <laughs> you know, if things turned out okay, like I lived, I didn't die, so it, it, it yeah. it'll be okay. I try to frame it in a positive way, as I do most things in my life. Right. Um, well, you know, I think, I think maybe the last thing, if uh, if you could comment, 
if you could comment on this, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you don't have anything, maybe you do, but we've been thinking about how you talk to the patients, how you talk to families, how you relate to the patient. But I wonder if, again, just having this unique experience and having been on the other side of things, when you're teaching your junior residents, when you're teaching them not just the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, the anatomy, et cetera, but when you're teaching them how to talk to people, how to relate to people and, and be with them, um, does this ever come up or, or do you think, and this may be unanswerable, but do you think you have any insights you've shared with your juniors that uh, might be particular to someone with your experiences and, and with this perspective that you might be able to share with any other residents who are listening? Well, I'm lucky because our, our junior residents are, are phenomenal. They really don't need a whole lot of teaching. They have a lot of self-motivation mm. and they're all really empathetic. But one thing that I do sometimes say is that it goes a long way sometimes to just ask a patient, how are you feeling? Um, I, I, I feel like sometimes you, if you have like that emotional maturity, you can tell Sometimes you can ask a patient, here's, you know, how, do you have any pain? How's your physical exam? Can you move your arm? This or that. But sometimes on rounds, if, if able, and I always try to make time, but if I see that a patient is really struggling from like a emotional standpoint, I'll always ask, you know, how are you feeling? Like, how are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about what's going on? Like, is something bothering you? Sort of just asking that, that, question really sort of sometimes it opens up the floodgates and, and patients are really appreciative that you're willing to listen to some of their problems even though we always have a million things to do and i think it's because somebody asked me once in the hospital that resident i wish i know he's out practicing somewhere and if he remembers me you know thank you so much for everything you did but because he asked me you know how are you feeling how are you doing what what sports do you like what 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 are you interested in doing like what do you want to like do you, we would talk about actually i think the bulls were in the playoffs that year i'm a big laker fan but i remember he i think he was a big bulls fan <laughs> and and we were just chatting about that and that meant a lot to me so something i always try to, to stress is that obviously these are these are people and sometimes just that question how are you feeling how are you doing today it really it really makes a big difference for them yeah, that personal touch. Well, Alvin, you know, in in the course of doing this show for these uh, few years now, I've uh, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, ask them personal questions, hear their stories, and it's been a privilege. But this has been a very unique conversation for me, and a unique privilege uh, among all of those conversations. Uh, I will never again be able to do one of these interviews and come out of it thinking, wow, I, I shared some something personal about myself. I shared some opinion or thought I have, and that was pretty personal that I just put out there because you've blown me out of the water. Um, <laughs> but, you know, on, on obviously, on behalf of myself, Dr. Wang, everybody listening, uh, we're really grateful for you being willing to come on and share that story uh, and how it's affected your career, your life trajectory, and your perspective within this career. Uh, so, Alvin Chan. Thank you very much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast and sharing your case that you can't forget. Thank you so much, JP. Appreciate it.
Wow. Well, I want to thank uh, Alvin for coming on the podcast and sharing such a personal story. Um, you know, it takes a lot of courage, I think, and it takes uh, a real a real need to share, to help others to talk about an experience like that that he went through personally. And obviously, Alvin's very busy. So Alvin, thank you for coming on the podcast. But, you know, JP, I wanted to get right into something that, that was so fascinating you guys talked about. And maybe I'm guilty of this, which is this idea that, you know, I, I, we, I just read like 250 personal statements in the past couple of months, probably like you looking at the new applicant pool. And I am one of those guys who who feels this way about people who write about, well, you know, I, my uncle had a carpal tunnel surgery. Now, Alvin's situation is different, right? Because it's, it's, it's him. But right. it, one of the most common personal statements is that one, which is like, you know, when I was 16, I had a back spasm. So I saw a doctor and the neurosurgeon inspired me to go in this field. And to me, it doesn't mean anything. It's like, and it's not even relevant because it's like saying, well, okay, you know, in order for me to be a police officer, I have to have had a cousin that was incarcerated. Like it doesn't make any sense to me except to say that, okay, you have a little bit of knowledge about who we are, but it doesn't make you any more qualified. Yeah. And you know, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I feel like people who have that connection to the field from a young age, who have uh, a, a family member or a friend or some personal exposure to a neurosurgeon, it's not like it's their fault that they had that experience. And it's not like it's their fault that that's what sparked their interest in neurosurgery. But at least when we've talked about it in the past, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the point you always would make with me is that's not enough. Like maybe that's your introduction and that's what sparks your interest, but you need more than that to convince me that you are making a wise decision and you know what you're doing to commit your life to this field and to this career. Um, so, you know, it, again, it's not your fault if that's how you get started down the path, but show me that something happened after that and that you know what you're jumping into head first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I brought it up. Uh, this has nothing to do with Alvin per se. I brought it up because we are in interview season right now. And, and, and I've come across a lot of personal statements like that. And I always tell people that's not the one to write. That's not the way you convince a hard ass like me that, you know, you can, you can take the lumps and you can, you know, is that going to get you through your 120 hour weeks of work that right. you had a back spasm when you were 16? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be. Now, there are some people like one of our residents who, who I love dearly, or a family member died of, of, a, of a neurosurgical problem. And the process of it actually really, uh, maybe we can get into it one day on the podcast, really does make him a better doctor. And, and you know, that's where I want to go next with this Alvin story, because I, I think Alvin issued a very uh, compelling and important call to us as neurosurgeons to say, well, look, embracing the compassionate side of who you are and making that part of your your practice and your your caregiving has an impact and, and he yeah. was very clear about this and i i agree with him i i can think of lots of patients where the the extra minute you spent with them did make a difference so i want to ask you about this jp because you know i'm guilty of being overly busy like like all of us like why do you think it is that that we we don't just sit down at the bedside and talk for 40 minutes with somebody about, you know, their kid's brain tumor, right? Why don't we do that? Right. You, you know, that that is, I think, the most critical part of this conversation that I was able to have with Alvin. And and I think the most important thing for you and I to talk about, I did want to briefly say, and, and honestly, it, it'll tie together, I think, that 
something you said when we were just talking about the interview process and and applying, and it's like, well, you have this connection to neurosurgery that's not necessary or sufficient to get you in the field. It reminds me of the the older, more historic view to medical training in general, where even dating back to the ancient days, you had to have a doctor in the family. You had to be descended from physicians to receive medical training. And I think what I love most about neurosurgery is that no one really cares about that. It really is a team of misfits. Like we, we always joke about the Navy SEALs of medicine. And I remember when I applied to medical school, a surgeon wrote me a letter of recommendation, someone I had shadowed who I won't name, but he let me read the letter and he went out of his way to say in the letter, John Paul, you know, worked hard, was very interested. He comes from a family with no physicians. And I was just so disappointed that he wrote that, like even thought it was important. And so one of the things I love most about the neurosurgical community is that no one really cares if you know a neurosurgeon or have any connection to the field. They care more about who you are than where you're coming from. And part of that, I think, is why in our field we, we get such a diverse cultural background and a diverse psychological background outside of that one defining common trait of dedication and hardworking ethic. And so part of that means we have this broad diversity of, call it warmth, call it cuddliness, call it compassion in our interactions and the way we express uh, that to other people. And part of that is how we interact with patients, how much time we spend at the bedside. I think that to finally answer your question, Dr. Wang, I think the most cliche and trite answer, but cliches are cliches for a reason, is that we simply don't have as much time as other doctors. If you look at the ratio of number of neurosurgeons to number of patients a neuro neurosurgeon see, uh, that's a vanishingly small fraction if you put us in the numerator. And particularly uh, in academic programs and training programs where residents are running the service, seeing consults rounding on people, there's maybe one or two residents for a service of 60, 70, 80 patients on a list during the day. So, you know, we'll get into deeper reasons and more complex reasons, but at least at the base of the pyramid is just number of minutes per day. You can't sit there at bedside holding someone's hand the way that people in another field where they have 20 people running a service uh, have the time to, you know, sit and talk and spend that time in the room. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we are so overly busy and, and I'm guilty of this too. I don't spend enough time with my patients. But well, I also feel like, you know, we're not really like a cognitive specialty. So I always say, well, if, if I'm if I'm going to spend an extra hour a day rounding, that's either something I'm going to have to give up in terms of, of the, the time in surgery or the time doing research or time, you know, putting together this podcast, right? All these things that we have that stress us out. And it goes back to some other elements of our podcast. Like, why did we do a whole mini series on families? Well, I mean, it was interesting because I think of the unique stressors. I, I'm thinking back to like Linda Liao and Marvin Bergschneider talking about how they would try to juggle things to do cases mm -hmm. and how limiting that was when she was talking about he would start a case for her. Like, how many times could that happen? Like 10,000? No, it happened like, you know, a couple hundred times maybe like you know you think about those those elements of how we are so stressed for time and i i i hope that alvin can continue to feel this way about things and his message is important and i hope other people listening will do that but i i do want to balance it with some realism like you said because there just isn't enough time and there's another part of it right which we talked about before which was 
um, we're human too. And so if you're overly empathic, uh, it can become a paralytic. Um, and I'm thinking about one of the former USC residents who was years above me, who's now a very powerful man. And the famous story about him, because he was just a wonderful human being, great doctor, great researcher, amazing surgeon, one time was hemming and hawing about, should we take out this brain tumor? And the patient herniated and died right there mm-hmm. as he's considering it cognitively, right? And, it, you know, I don't know how true that story really is, but the idea is that there is, there is this idea, it's the same reason we don't let people operate on their own, their own family members. Right. Right. You would say, well, ideally I care the most about my parents. So if they need a surgery, I should do it. Right. But we really don't permit that because why? Because you cannot be detached from the person enough to do the right thing. Right. And, and you know, I'd have to say it, it's interesting that you point out how we're human too. And so there is the need to have that distance to make the right decisions objectively, as you point out. Um, And there is the need to kind of protect your own emotionality. As you said, if you are a more empathetic person, if you are naturally a more compassionate person, as I think most people who go into medicine tend to be, then that can really paralyze you. That can hurt you and that can impair your ability to keep taking care of people. If you spend more of your precious time each day doing something that is upsetting and even, you know, taking it down to a more literal level about how you spend the time during the day, not just, oh, I could be operating, I could be in clinic, I could be writing papers, I could be with my family. I remember when I started internship, I was so excited to be a doctor. I used to get up an extra hour, hour and a half early each morning for my pre-rounds so I could spend more time just chit-chatting with the spine patients I was rounding on each morning because It was my first experience walking around being someone's doctor, and I loved it so much. And I did that as much as I can until, obviously, it it started catching up with me. And I thought, oh, man, I'm losing two hours of sleep every day. The precious, precious time I get to actually sleep as an intern just for the personal pleasure of spending more time with these people each morning. Uh, That's not going to work long term. That's going to impair me if I'm even more fatigued and running around like a zombie. So for the very sake of the people it pleases me to spend more time with, I need to spend less time with them so I can actually do my job. Yeah, it's so fascinating, right? Because because when you're in medical school or in college shadowing, the, the patients don't even want to talk to you. They're like, I'm not talking to you. And then right. like you go to this next level and they're like, please spend more time with me. And, and the funny thing about this, and it really is interesting human nature to me, like Every morning I come in to do surgery, the patients ask the same thing, which is, did you get a good night's rest? And my answer is, as you know, always the same, which is, it shouldn't have to matter, right? But, right. but then, then, you know, they want you to spend the time with them. And I go to clinic and it's like, you know, why, why am I waiting to see you? Why did I have to wait an hour? And then you get in the room and they want to chew up an extra 20 minutes, right? And it's like, right. well, this is why you're waiting because the guy before you did this, right? And so there is this very, very important push-pull that – you know, we're, we're, we're kind of like, I don't want to say we're gods. We're, we're, we're so important in these people's lives that they can't get enough of, of us for our information, for our support, for our reassurance, for our hands, whatever it is, whatever resources we have, people want it. Right. And, and what Alvin is saying is important, which is expressing how important the time and the spoken word is to a patient who's going through a very difficult process. 
And that's but, exactly it, because there is a flip side to that coin that I think we need to acknowledge is that if we're going to sit here and accept the fact that we can't spend as many minutes with each patient as other specialties can, then that means that every minute we do spend in a room with a patient, we have to make it count. And this is something we talked about a year or more ago when we did our Hell Week series. Um, I always try to keep in mind, if I go down to the emergency room, the trauma bay, and I meet some patient for the first time and likely the only time, you know, they've got some tiny little ditzel of blood, they're never going to need anything surgically. That's probably the only time in that person's life that they're going to interact with a neurosurgeon, presumably. And so if I'm going to see them for three minutes to examine them, make sure that they don't have any symptoms and then they're never going to see us again, I'm going to make that time count because like it or not, there is this mystique to our field in the population. And so I don't want to represent us as cold, uncaring, brusque people. I'm going to take the time for those three minutes to actually connect with that person and actually make them feel like, wow, I saw a neurosurgeon and he told me everything was going to be okay. I feel like I'm going to be okay. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to thank Alvin again for for coming on and uh, being on this podcast. And, you know, I hope he picks a career that allows him to continue to be compassionate um, and care for patients. Sounds like he's probably going to end up having to do spine, but <laughs> that's just my own personal bias. But thank you, Alvin, on behalf of our listeners. JP, thanks for doing that interview. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.